Is it a cop-out to pray for God's will to be done? That's the question we're discussing today on The Hero of the Story, presented by The Gospel Project. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of The Hero of the Story, a podcast to help you explore the big story and big truths of Scripture. I'm Aaron Armstrong, and with me, as always, is Brian Dembozik. So, Brian, we are continuing our survey of the final week of Jesus's pre-crucifixion life here. And we're at one of those key moments because we have gone from the triumphal entry on Sunday. We've um, we've gone through his his visit into Jerusalem multiple times, his teaching, his arrangements um, uh, for for the Last Supper. Um, and now here we are. We're catching up to him right after that. Um, and so this week, next week, we're 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 in like this really tight time frame here. Which is really exciting for us, isn't it? Yeah, we're in this such a critical period span of, I mean, hours literally. Usually, as we're looking through the Gospels, we measure in terms of seasons often, maybe days. But now, I mean, literally, we're looking at events separated by hours in this really compacted time surrounding the arrest we're going to talk about today. And then, of course, the crucifixion uh, and then resurrection of Jesus. So, Again, just to kind of set that stamp, as you've already walked us through, we've, on several of the last episodes, we've kind of walked through this last week of his earthly ministry leading up to the cross and empty tomb. And the narrative that we're looking at today takes place really in the wee hours of Friday morning, um, maybe really late Thursday, the end of the day, into Friday morning, up until dawnish. Um, it's it's overnight that time period where Jesus will be in the garden praying Thursday after the the Passover celebration, the Last Supper, and the upper room discourse. And then they go out to the garden at some point after dinner, so later in the evening they're praying, and it's late enough that the disciples are falling asleep, and so it very likely is early Friday morning technically. And uh, that's when Judas and the others come to arrest. And then, of course, the trials happen right after this, leading up to the crucifixion at the early part of, the, of Friday itself, so as the sun rises. So that's kind of where we are in this time period. Yeah. And so we're going to be covering a really big chunk of, of Scripture today. Um, we're looking at pretty much the entirety of the back half of Matthew, or of Mark 14, rather, um, I'm going to just start that again. So we're going to be covering a pretty big chunk of Scripture today. We're going to be looking at pretty much the entirety of the back half of Mark chapter 14 from verses 32 through around 64, 65 kind of thing. Um, it's it's so much that we're, we, and we've got so much to discuss that that we actually aren't going to read that together today. So take five minutes. So pause the podcast, take five minutes, and then read it, <laughs> um, and, then and then come back. Come back. <laughs> and then come back. Um, so, um, so welcome back. We're glad that you're here. Um, here is uh, here is what uh, here are some questions that we want to address that come up in this passage. Uh, I'm going to go with the first couple. Okay. Okay. So. 
Uh, first couple um, include this. Uh, did Jesus doubt God's plan in the garden? So he's there, he's praying, he's saying, uh, Father, if it's, your, if it's your will, can this cup pass from me? And we, we know, obviously, that it doesn't. But um, but people will look at this and say, okay, what was going on there? Did Jesus not want to do what God was was had sent him into the world for? And the answer to that is is no, no, he wasn't doubting God's plan, and he wasn't trying to rebel against God in any way, shape, or form. What we're seeing here is we're seeing the humanity of Jesus on display. He knew exactly what was going to happen. And we all know what was going to happen to him because we've read the story. We've heard the story. And so if you knew that was going to happen, that would be overwhelming. The weight of that is, is just inconceivable for a, for, for, for a human to grasp. And it is, it's just shocking, really. So, so what we need to recognize here is, is we do need to recognize the, the, the reality that Jesus is both God and man. And that's what this is telling. This is what is, this is a keen reminder of that we're very, we're very quick, um, in many circles of, of Christians, um, to point to his divinity and overlook his humanity. And this points us back and says, no, don't forget, he was he was like us. He was familiar with grief and sorrow and pain and temptations the same way that we all are. But he never sinned. So uh, so that's that's the first question. The second one is um, is related to it, which is what was Jesus talking about when after he would pray, he would go back to his disciples, uh, Peter, James, and John, and he would say, and he would say to them, as he found them asleep, because he'd asked them to pray with him, and he would say to them, "Your spirits are indeed willing, but the flesh is weak." What did he mean by that? Well, really, what this is is this is a reference to these three's genuine desire to follow and obey. Jesus in the first part. So the the spirit being willing, that's what that's talking about. But the flesh being weak is is that reminder of even genuine desire giving falling short or failing. Um, so believers who desire to obey Jesus can and will still fall short because of physical needs and desires at times. Um, all kinds of things happen. It's not always overt sin. So those are a couple of key questions there. So another question we see is, is the first time Jesus goes off to pray before he returns to find the disciples asleep and, and what he prays for specifically, he asks God basically to spare him of this cup. You know, he says, oh, God, you can do anything. Um, you know, if, if it's your will, remove this cup, take this cup away. But nevertheless, not my will, but but your will. And what exactly was Jesus praying for there? What what did he mean? Was there potentially another way? Uh, and what was this cup? I, I think a lot of uh, theologians like to discuss what the cup was. I think one of the more common understandings, it's the cup of God's wrath that, that Jesus was about to experience on the cross. I think that's a fair, good way to, to understand this. Um, 
any way you look at it, it's, it's, some people think maybe it was more the physical suffering itself. Some think it was the separation from the Father because as Jesus became sin, uh, he separated. You know, the Father turned his face from the Son, and, and that was a unique thing, of course. So however this is nuanced, there's something going on here that Jesus is anticipating what will happen on the cross. And of course, he does not want to experience this, understandably, as you said, Aaron, fully divine, but also fully human. And so it seems like he is, he in this moment, that is what he's stating. He's saying, if there's another way, was there another way? The, the, the answer is no. And I think the basic way to understand this is because it happened, Um if there was another way, God would have done, the Father would have done something else. Mm-hmm. The fact that Jesus still had to go through the cross affirms there was no other way. Uh, the parallel passages to this, Luke twenty-two forty-three, for example, mentions that um, an angel appeared to strengthen Jesus. It, it affirms that's God's way of, of saying, no, there is no other way. It must be this way. But in that love of the, the triune God... Comfort is being provided to the son. So there is no other way. Um, you know, this is an important this is an important reminder that this was the only way to provide salvation for people from sin. God did not do this lightly. Um, he w- he is not cruel. he He is not sadistic. Uh, he did not have Christ endure the cross only as a secondary option, you know, and, and this is an important discussion when people say there are more than one way to be saved. You know, you can be saved in other ways apart from Jesus Christ. No, if that were true, then it makes God cruel because mm-hmm. why did he sacrifice his son then? If there's another way to be saved, he should not have sacrificed his son. What cruel father, what cruel God would do that? So it's important that we understand that there was no other way. This was the way. And don't miss also, this is not a, an argument between the Son and the Father. The Son, as we see here, is, is more than willing to consent and defer to the Father's will, which, which is really important here. Another question is, practically after this, uh, we see Judas comes and he kisses Jesus in betrayal. What was going on here? Why, why did Judas do this? Well, again, this would be the typical kiss on the cheek that we often see. Um, portrayed, and this was a sign of respect. It was a warm greeting, and it was done to. That was the signal for the the crowd coming to to know who was Jesus to arrest him. While many would have known him by sight, we have to keep in mind this is the middle of the night, so it was dark, perhaps, and and so it just maybe they were from a distance as well, so they could identify quickly. Okay, we know exactly who we're going to go. Now let's go get them. So there, there was some strategy from their side why Judas had to do this. But don't miss also from the divine perspective, um, from a sovereign God's perspective, this just adds that element of wound, the sting. It wasn't, I mean, Judas, yeah, we, we kind of put him off to the side. Don't we? When we think about the 12, we think of really the 11, and mm-hmm. then there's Judas. But this man walked with the disciples and Jesus for three years before this. He spent time with them. We can't caricaturize him. He, it is more than likely that they laughed together. They had a good time together. They talked together. They did. He was not the arch villain that had you know, nothing good within him. Whether he was saved or not, I don't think he was, but that's a different discussion. Yes. But you know, this is somebody who was a friend toward Jesus, 
even though Jesus knew he would betray him, he knew what was going on, it's still, it's that extra salt in the wound, so to speak, of that betrayal. And, and, and I think that's important for us because when we think of Judas, man, how heartless was it for Judas to do this, to kiss Jesus on the cheek as an act of betrayal. But we do that too in different ways too. So there's a lesson baked into that act as well. Absolutely. I mean, it is probably the clearest violation of the third commandment uh, to take the Lord's name in vain <laughs> um, <laughs> that you could get um, in a in a real life example. So a- another question here that uh, is is one of my favorites because it's kind of a gimme. Uh, is uh, what did Jesus mean by saying, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. So this is something that we are all about because, I mean, we we are all about the, the story of scripture and how it all points to Jesus. Um, and this is just one of those signal points in the Gospels that calls us back to that fact that we should always be looking at how scripture from beginning to end um, as we're reading the Old Testament um, that we need to see, we need to read that with an eye toward Jesus. That we need to recognize that God's plan from the very beginning was to send the Messiah to come and die for His people, and that that Messiah would be God Himself. And that is um, this. This just opens us up to this bigger world and this bigger reality of what's going on in Scripture and incites worship in us. Uh, one other question that we've got is, was Jesus' trial even legal? So think about this. He's he's arrested in the middle of the night, early early morning hours. He's taken to the Sanhedrin in the early morning, and they have this they have this trial going on. They're trying to find some way to kill him, some reason to have him executed is is how the text puts it. But they they have a problem. They have no legitimate witnesses because they're trying to they're trying to find something to pin on him and it doesn't work because they because for a couple of key reasons. One is that they had one they they really had one thing that they could get him on from a Jewish law perspective, which uh, which is blasphemy, and we'll get to that in a minute. But and that one in, under Jewish law, Leviticus twenty four uh, sixteen says that blasphemers are to be put to death. But here's the problem: the Jews were not autonomous. The Jewish people were ruled by the Romans. And because they were ruled by the Romans, they had no authority to put anyone to death. They had to get him on something that broke Roman law. And there was nothing there. If they could get him on treason or sedition, two things that he didn't do, so um, so rebellion against the Roman state, they they could they could make it happen. And the Romans would be happy to execute him for that because there have been plenty of false messiahs who did that um, and tried to lead lead the people into rebellion and it didn't work. Um, instead, those messiahs ended up dead and didn't come back from the grave. Um, <laughs> so they're trying to get him on stuff like this. They can't get any witnesses to agree. So they've got this false kangaroo court going on 
until they finally get to the one thing they want. And so I'll leave that with you. Yeah, and that's why, you know, you see, you mentioned the trial. It's really trials. It's a series of trials. You have Jewish trials. You have Roman trials. you got Jesus going back and forth between Herod and and uh, Pilate and the Sanhedrin and so forth. And, and it, it just a- exemplifies what you're talking about here, Aaron, that they're trying so hard to convict him, and there was a reticence to convict him. We even see this at the very end with Pilate. There's a reticence to convict him. Uh, but they finally relent because I think they were at that point, they were worried the crowd was so riled up. Had they not, then they would have a different riot and then they're going to get in trouble with Rome for a different reason. So yeah, just this, this series of trials, shadiness. Um, it was overnight as well. I think that violated Jewish law, that the, the trials mm-hmm. could not have been overnight. And so just everything's going wrong. And so what they're driving toward is that from the Jewish perspective, what sealed the deal for them. And they knew this going in they had been looking for cause to prove this, but it's proven at the trial because if you look at, at Mark 14, uh, verse 61 and 62 specifically, you, you see they're questioning Jesus. He's, he's quiet, fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, by the way. And then you see the high priest question him and, and ask him this point blank. Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One, the Son of God? Now, that phrase right there, it's basically asking, are you claiming to be the Messiah? Which that alone probably would not have been prominent. There have been others who claimed to be the Messiah before. Many false messiahs have gone. It's that last part, the son of the blessed one, the son of God. If you look, that had gotten him in trouble before when he referenced himself as the son. And that was enough to be um, a blasphemy. So basically, the high priest is basically asking, are you a blasphemer? And Jesus responds in verse 62, I am. Mm-hmm. Now, he, he goes on. We're going to come back to I am. This is I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And in 63, the high priest tears his robes and said, why do we still need witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? They all condemned him as deserving death. So what happened there is Jesus, when he actually does speak, we see he directly claims to be the Messiah, the Son of God. And those first two words in verse 62, I am, are sufficient. As we've talked about on prior episodes, that is connected with Yahweh, uh, the name of God from Exodus 3.14, I am who I am, or timeless existence, that that notion. This this use of this phrase has gotten Jesus, uh, I would say getting in trouble, but they, that has come up in prior debates and arguments um, for the same reason, for, for claims of blasphemy. So basically, you can paraphrase it this way. The high priest says, are you claiming to be Messiah, the Son of God? And Jesus says, I am the Son of God. And then this is what you're going to see. And then what further need? Blasphemy. So this is really important. We, I think a lot of people listen to me like, okay, this is, we know this. We know that. But you want to file this away because sometimes um, skeptics will claim that Jesus never claimed to be God that he was made into God by his followers afterward. And this is one of several passages where we can go to really quickly and, and easily and show that is there's no truth to that. It cannot be supported. Here, Jesus clear, clearly uh, claimed to be the Messiah, the Son of God. Absolutely. And I love the way that you described that, too, of, of, of that exchange, um, because there is something that's really important. Uh, in in the way that we think about it, in the way that we read it. Again, we have a tendency to read scripture really flatly 
and and that's not good for us. There's a lot that's always going on. And so when we when we have the the high priest saying, "Are you claiming to be the son of God or are you claiming to be God?" um Jesus saying, "I'm not just claiming it." Or, "No, I'm not yes. claiming it. I am it." Yes. <laughs> and and that is huge because it's yeah. basically let's just throw down the gloves. Exactly, and then, and then what he says after this is he refers to a messianic prophecy, what they would have known as a messianic, messianic prophecy. So yeah, basically, so he's, he's doubling down. Yeah, he's doubling down there. He said, "Let me go even farther." <laughs> yep, yep. So it's so. I mean, I love when Jesus is in go time mode. It's so much fun um, because I mean, those are the things that you you've got to love about reading scripture. Well, and again, it takes us back to our prior question. In the garden, it seems like Jesus is really reluctant. It seems like he's looking for an out, an exit. And here, what do you see? A boldness. He is not shirking away from the ministry that God has, has the Father has, has given him to fulfill. He is boldly doing this. Hebrews, it was joy before him that he, he pursued the cross. Mm-hmm. So this, this idea of being obedient and pleasing the Father providing for the salvation we see there is no hesitation here he is doing it yeah absolutely all right so let's take a look at the, let's think about this from a discipleship perspective so we've we've talked through some big ideas what kind of practical guidance can we offer um, as someone is working through this passage with with multiple someones or individuals yeah, I, the the first two are kind of a pair, so let me tackle them mm-hmm. together. The first one is we looked at the garden where Jesus goes and he prays, and it's a reminder to us that God always answers prayer. Now, we always have to be careful. When we speak of this, somebody can misinterpret and think we're saying God will always answer prayers the way we want or positively. So if we pray for X, Y, Z... God always answers our prayer. We will get X, Y, Z. No, that is not biblical. Um, That is taking advantage of God, the best way to phrase it. Um, And and presumptuous, sinful, you name it, that is not how it works. Mm -hmm. But we do know that God will always answer prayer, whether that answer is a yes, X, Y, Z, or whether it's no, you will not get, or it's something different. Um, ABC instead of XYZ, for example. So God always answers prayer. We see it here in Jesus' prayer in the garden. God answered that prayer. How did he answer? He did not provide a different cup, so to speak, or a way to avoid the cup. He, he had Jesus endure the cup. But he also comforted him, as we talked about earlier. He strengthened him. We see Jesus following uh, the will of the Father with full resolution, as we just talked about. So there's a, there's a lesson for us as we're discipling others to say, we, it's right and fitting for us to pray and ask God for things. But we always have to be quick. I think Jesus gives us this example of saying, but it's not about my will. It's about your will. And I think the struggle in prayer, but the beauty in prayer is when we can learn to defer our will to his and say, God, if my will is not in line with yours, don't change your will. Change me so my will aligns with yours and let me delight in whatever that is. That right there, I think, is the sweet spot of prayer. Tangent to this, the second um, practical application, so 1B, if you will, is that we should never be afraid to ask others to pray with us and for us as we see Jesus do in the garden. Um, 
you know, he invites his friends to pray with him. Uh, it, it's it's kind of a little bit ambiguous of how did Jesus feel when he went back and saw them? Was he frustrated with them, disappointed, broke? I, I don't know. Um, I feel like he wasn't surprised at all. No, he wasn't surprised probably. But, you know, so so there was this, in a sense, Jesus needed them. Um, he not only invited them in for their benefit, but for him, he he wanted to know that they were praying with him and for him. And so, of course, if if Jesus saw fit to do this, then why shouldn't we? I have to confess, it's hard for me to do. It's hard for me to ask other people to pray for me. There's, um, it, and usually, if you get pressed deep down, it's a false humility. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's that's not really it. It's really a pride that's veiled in false humility. The pride is no, I shouldn't need other people to pray for me. Um, false humility is well, who am I? You know, they're busy and everything. No, when it comes down, it's pride and that's sin. And so really we need to, to fight against that and we need to look for inviting others to pray for us and with us as an opportunity for us to be strengthened as brothers and sisters in Christ and also for us to share one another's burdens as we've been called to do in Scripture and also give an opportunity for others to, to delight in watching God work in and through us. Again, no matter how that prayer is answered, what we're doing is we're inviting people into our lives to see God at work, and somehow, in some way, or, or at some point, uh, there's a good possibility of those people seeing God work in a new way, an exciting way in your life as you're asking them to pray for you that benefits them as well. So we bless others by asking them to pray, I guess is a shorter way to phrase it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think our last question really goes back to what you were talking about in the first or our, our last uh, last piece of advice is, is probably a better thing. And it goes back to the first question that led off this episode. So um, not my will, but your will to, will be done. Is it a cop-out to pray for God's will to be done? Brian, you answered that very, very succinctly um, in, in, your, in addressing uh, our first piece of guidance. But really, let's, let's go back to that for just a second because... Um, Unfortunately, there's a lot of nonsense that's that's taught about this about this. While certainly people can can take words from scripture and turn them almost into an incantation yeah. um, when they're praying. And so there there so there's a, you see this a lot with, you know, in Jesus name. It's like let's just yes. tag that on. And uh, it's like no, that's not how that works. <laughs> um, I, I remember have, I remember in uh, I was discipling some people and I was on church staff somewhere and this conversation came up and some of the people actually thought you had to to literally end a prayer that way and if you didn't it was an error right and so, and so we had to talk about that and it's like no right. it's not a magical incantation right right and it's and that's the thing and so sometimes people can can you can legitimately use this idea of your will be done in that same kind of way more often than not, people don't do that. Um, there have there has been there's been some really bad teaching that's been out there for about 10, 15 years, kind of thing, that uh, has has outright stated that this that to pray that God's will be done is a cop out, that you're not being brave or bold mm-hmm. enough. Um, that is in uh, theological terms, hooey. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it is, it is nonsense. It is just not true. It is wrong and it's outright evil. What instead is 
true and right is a hundred percent of the time to be praying for God's will to be done. Because when we are asking for something like that, if we are asking out of a, in a genuine heart, out of a genuine desire to please God and obey him, we're acting in humility. Yeah. And, and, and again, we have to be self-aware to recognize that even in prayer, um, this beautiful spiritual discipline, we can be wrong. We selfishness can drive. We can go to, and sometimes even the request seems reasonable. Um, and somebody was like, no, that, that's a reasonable prayer request, but it's rooted in selfishness or, or some other in, inappropriate motive. Mm-hmm. And so we, we have to just be humble and self-aware enough to recognize that there are many times where we could be praying from the wrong posture or in ignorance. It makes total sense for us to pray that somebody is spared from something difficult, but God's plan is for them to go for that because it will be better for them. And, uh, and so sometimes in pure ignorance, because we don't know the big story, we can pray for something and be off on it. So, man, it is this, yeah, it is to be charitable, naive, um, mm-hmm. to be uncharitable. Yeah, it is heresy to teach people that you should just double down on your will and arm wrestle God's will into aligning with yours because that's what faith is about. No, that is not what faith is about. Faith is believing that God is true, he is good, and his will is always best, and fighting to be on his page, not force him on ours. Man, that's a great place to wrap this up. So, Brian, thanks for chatting about this, and thank you all for listening to today's episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please do leave a sincere five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen to the show. And for more resources to help you focus your ministry on the gospel, please visit gospelproject.com.